Let me lead us in prayer, and then I encourage you and invite you to open your copies of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 15 and Mark chapter 16, where we will be this morning. Let's pray. Father, wow. Thank you for the gift of music. Thank you for the gift of poetry. Thank you that you, the author of all truth, the author of life, have given us the capacity to put into music the great truth of the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And as we peek forward into Revelation and the end times, as we're gathered around the throne in heaven as your people, we will be rejoicing in song, praising the name of the one who is worthy. The one who was dead and is alive forevermore. And we will be with him. And we will see him as he is. Give us that hope. Give us the faith to believe that. And help us to live in light of that. All for the glory of Jesus. So again, I ask that you would open our eyes that we may see him, open our hearts that we would love him and know him, open our eyes, our ears that we may hear him. For his glory and in his name I pray, amen. Thank you um, just again for the opportunity of opening God's Word with you this morning. I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures, please, to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 this morning. I want to say this here at the very beginning. I want you to know that the heart of Christianity isn't a better approach to morality. The heart of Christianity isn't new insights into the nature of the universe. The heart of Christianity is a dead man walking out of a grave. That is the heart of Christianity. And that's true because a risen Jesus changes everything. So we're going to look at the Sunday resurrection account in Mark's gospel. And if you are with us most Sundays, you'll know that we are working our way through Mark's gospel. We're not to chapter 15 and 16 yet. We're still stuck back in chapter 2. But I wanted to to go to Mark 15 and 16 this morning because those of you who are regular attenders here, this will be familiar to you. Um. And so here it is, the death and the life of Jesus. And to get, I mean, to really get the death-defeating, hope-giving, life-changing power of the resurrection on Sunday, we've got to take a peek back into Friday and what happens on a cross. And so we're going to begin in verse 33 of Mark chapter 15. And as we make our way through this text, both Mark 15 and Mark 16, we're going to do a little Columbo here. Now, how many of you know who Columbo is? All right, so I just lost everybody who's younger than 45, right? Columbo, I love Columbo. Anybody Columbo fans? I mean, remember that old beat-up car he drove? Remember that worn-out, tan trench coat? The man, if I, I think if we'd have been on the set with him, that thing would have stunk to high heaven. He was wearing it all the time. He was the, the coolest TV detective ever that looked like the dumbest TV, uh, TV detective ever, right? I mean, that was kind of his shtick there, played by Peter Falk in the 70s and 80s. Um, he always kind of had this look that he was lost and he had no clue. 
Remember that? Until, and you knew when he had solved the case, when he went to the front door of the suspect's home and he turned around and you remember what he said? Oh, just one more thing. And that's what we find in Mark chapters 15 and 16. Mark is piling up one more thing after one more thing as real hard evidence that Jesus really did die and that he really rose again from the dead. So let's examine the evidence ourselves beginning in Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those ought to be precious words to all of you who love and trust in Jesus. Because the answer to that question is, why has God forsaken the Son? Because he's bearing my sin. He's paying it in full. Absorbing the wrath of the Father against my sin in my place. It's not that the Father doesn't love the Son. He loves Him infinitely. It's that the Father is treating the Son as if He had committed every one of my sins. This is precious. And some of the bystanders there hearing it said, Behold, He is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple, 85 feet tall, was torn in two from top to bottom. It's a miracle. Torn by heaven. Picturing to us that it's through Jesus, the one who is dying on the cross, that we have access now into the very heaven of God. Jesus is the one and only way. And when the centurion, the Roman centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger of Joseph and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, or bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spi- uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out. And they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and write his truths deeply upon our hearts. In this text, we learn two big things. Number one, Jesus dies. Number two, Jesus lives. Jesus lives. Jesus dies. You believe that? Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified upon a cross and that he really died? Because some who don't believe in Jesus say that Jesus did not die. Some people who you work with probably believe this. Some of your neighbors, some of your family members and your friends. And by the way, let me just say this as lovingly but as firmly as I can. If you don't know anybody who thinks like this, that Jesus didn't really die, I think we need to get out of our holy huddles and find people who do, who need Jesus. And when you find those people, you're going to need to know the answers to their questions. You need to know why you believe what you believe because some non-Christians think that on the cross, Jesus simply suffered severe injury and after an extended nap in a cool tomb, He was revived and then walked out and wandered out of the tomb early Sunday morning. That's what they call the swoon theory. But notice here, notice what Mark says very clearly. He tells us that Jesus breathed his last. Now, let me ask you, what happens when you breathe your last? Do you faint? Do you just kind of fall into a a faint uh, kind of nap-taking Thing? Is that what it is here? You don't swoon, you don't nap, you don't faint. When you breathe your last, you what? You die. Actually, the Greek word here is a word picture because it literally means to give up the ghost. It means your soul leaves your body for good. And Mark tells us right here that that's what happens to Jesus when he dies on the cross But it isn't just Mark who says that. Notice in verses 38 and 39, we have a Roman soldier. Rome is the enemy of Jesus. They have set themselves up as the enemy of Jesus. So we have this Roman soldier, a centurion. He oversees crucifixions. So he's an expert in his field because Roman soldiers were trained in successfully pulling off a crucifixion because that's what Rome did with people they didn't like. In fact, we read in history that a hundred years before Jesus dies on the cross, back in 75 B.C., 6,000 followers of a man named Spartacus, you ever heard of him, were crucified by Rome. Rome has been crucifying people for at least a hundred years. In other words, Rome knows crucifixion. And this Roman centurion does too. And so when he stands, notice what Mark tells us here about the Roman centurion. He stands facing Jesus. 
He sees Jesus breathe his last. And then he says this. Truly this man was the Son of God. And he's right. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. But notice here that the centurion is referring to Jesus in the past tense. So this centurion isn't just a crucifixion overseer. He's a crucifixion coroner who testifies with his own lips that Jesus is dead, referring to him in the past tense. But notice that the centurion isn't the only eyewitness to the death of Jesus because we're told here that there are other people who see Jesus die in verses 40 and 41. People who know Jesus, people who follow Jesus, people who love Jesus, they witness Jesus breathing his last and that's significant because they are women. And it's significant because in a culture that demeaned women, Jesus dignified women and defended women. And so if Jesus isn't dead and somebody tries to pull him off a cross and bury him in a tomb, these women are going to come unglued. I mean, we've all heard the saying, right? Hell hath no fury like what? Like, men, you better have this, all right? You better get this. Young guys who want to be married someday, you better learn this phrase. Let's try it one more time. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Just imagine the fury of a group of women who love Jesus. If anybody tries to pull the body of Jesus off the cross and bury him in a tomb while he's still alive... Sometimes, you know, we read back and we read, the, we, we read the Bible and think that the people back then were a lot less scientific and so they didn't really know how death worked. But I would propose to you that because health care then wasn't what it is today, that people back then saw a lot more death than we'll ever see. And so these women know what death isn't and they know what death is which is why verses 42 through 45 are important because Mark is calling another witness to the stand. He's piling up more evidence. This time, it's Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea is a big deal because he is a, notice in the text, he is a respected member of the Jewish religious council, the Sanhedrin. Who are the Sanhedrin? Or this is the group of guys who conspires with Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus and ultimately to kill Jesus. But Joseph is a believer in Jesus while still a member of this council. And when he goes to Pilate to ask for permission to bury the body of Jesus, notice here, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. By the way, let me just, a, a, an aside comment here. Um, if Mark is writing this text, to dupe us into believing that something that isn't true, you don't put this in there, that when Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, Pilate's like, Jesus is already dead? You just don't put that in there. But why is Pilate surprised? Well, Pilate is surprised because it wasn't uncommon in that day for people being crucified to hang on the cross alive for two or three days. But, Notice here, we have the Sabbath that is quickly approaching at sundown on this Friday. And so the Jews, they want a quick death. 
That's why the soldiers break the legs of the two thieves that are crucified on either side of Jesus. But remember that Jesus' legs are not broken. He's already dead. The beatings he endured prior to his crucifixion have hastened his death. But notice here that Pilate is not going to take Joseph of Arimathea's word for it. And so he summons the Roman centurion who is there standing at the cross, facing Jesus, seeing Jesus breathe his last. And the Roman centurion once again confirms that, yes, Jesus is dead. Not partly dead, not mostly dead. He's all dead. And Pilate is convinced of that then, which is why he gives Joseph permission to notice here, bury the corpse. So before sundown on Friday evening, Joseph does what we do with the dead. He buries the body of Jesus. He wraps the body in in a linen shroud and lays him in a tomb. Now, that tells us something important. When you wrap a body like this, you get close enough to that body that you will pick up any sign of life. Faint breathing, a pulse, a heartbeat. You're close enough to hear it and to feel it and to see it. But there is no sign of life. Jesus is dead. And that's why Joseph leaves the body of Jesus in the tomb and rolls a stone against the entrance of the tomb. But notice here that Mark tells us that, Jesus, that, that, that Joseph is not alone at the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, are watching Joseph bury Jesus. And that's important because some people claim that on Sunday morning, when the women find an empty tomb, they find an empty tomb because they show up at the wrong tomb. But Mark squashes that possibility right here by telling us that some of those same women watched while Jesus was laid to rest. They know the tomb. Now, let's all just take a deep breath, all right? We just raced through the end of Mark 15. That's a lot of quick-hitting information, but if we're going to do Columbo, we've got to be able to process quick-hitting information, right? It's also important information. You know why? Because without a truly dead Jesus, there is no risen Jesus. And for believers in Jesus, the resurrection is everything. Everything we believe, everything we are, everything we do, all of it hinges on the resurrection. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that there is a cascading set of implications that flow out of an unrisen Jesus. Paul says this, if Christ is not raised then what I'm doing up here right now is in vain. Let's just shut it down. Pastor Ken, shut up, and let's all go home. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We are stuck in our sins. Christians who've already died are dead and lost forever, which means our lives that we live right now on earth before death, they're in vain, and we've made God out to be a liar. And then Paul says this, if we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most 
miserable. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, everything about Christianity comes crashing down like a house of cards. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, if the resurrection is a reality, it changes everything for everyone because it means that everyone will live forever either with Jesus in heaven or separated from Jesus in hell. A real resurrection means that this world is not spinning out of control. Inflation, Ukraine, this world is not spinning out of control if Jesus is risen What we see happening and feel happening in our world then isn't some random cataclysmic random set of events. No, instead God is fulfilling his plan in real time with real people and so there's real purpose to all of our lives even to the pain and suffering we experience in our lives. Because the resurrection promises that one day God is going to turn evil on its head and bring eternal good from it. And that means that God is right now moving all things to his predetermined conclusion of a new heaven and a new earth where the risen King Jesus will reign forever, ushering in an eternity of life and joy and peace and glory for his people. And we know that because the Jesus who dies is the Jesus who lives. That's why what happens in chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, matters big time. Mark here in these verses gives us three proofs that the resurrection really happened. And proof number one is that women are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. We've got Mary Magdalene, we've got Mary the mother of James, we've got Salome. All of them are women. And that's significant because in that day and in that culture, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. A Jewish historian from the first century named Josephus tells us that even a, the witness of, a, of multiple women, a group of women, was not acceptable. And by the way, I'm quoting here, ladies, so don't get upset with me. I'm not saying this. I'm reporting this. The witness of multiple women was not acceptable, and I'm quoting here, because of their levity and hysteria. Get mad at him, not me. You say, why does this matter? Why are you making a big deal of this? Well, think about this. If Mark is making up the story of the resurrection, would he really choose women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection? I mean, if you're planting witnesses, you don't choose those whose testimonies are considered unreliable and inadmissible. You just don't. So Mark reports that women are the first eyewitnesses because that's exactly what happened. God is showing us that the resurrection isn't a hoax because he specializes in using the marginalized and doing the unexpected. Because I want you to notice here that the women are not expecting a resurrection. They don't come to the tomb that morning looking for a miracle. They come to the tomb looking for closure. 
And that's why they're bringing spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. They aren't starry-eyed, gullible miracle seekers who show up at the tomb with lawn chairs and t-shirts for Jesus to sign. Because on their way to the tomb, they're asking a question, the same question we would ask. It wasn't something they had considered before leaving their homes early that Sunday morning. But now on their way to the tomb, they remember something. There's a stone there guarding the entrance of the tomb. So who will roll away the stone for us from the tomb? It's a valid question. And it tells us that the women are fully expecting the stone to still be in place at the entrance of the tomb. It's a very large stone. The Greek word here in verse 4 tells us that it's a, and you know some Greek, you just don't know that you know some Greek, because it's a mega stone. It's a big stone. It's a large stone. So they cannot move this stone. But the good news is, as they get within eyeshot of the tomb, they see that the stone has been rolled away. By the way... The stone is rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the world in. The stone is rolled away. And so when they arrive at the tomb, they would do the very same thing. They do the very same thing that we would do, and they go in. And when they go in, they're shocked because it isn't the body of Jesus they see. It's actually a young man dressed in white. And let me just point out, notice here how specific Mark is about this man. When they go in and they see, the ladies see this man dressed in white, notice he's on the right. You love the specificity here? I mean, if you're making this up, if you're making up a story, you don't put something like that in a made-up story. They walk into the tomb and the angel's on the right because the other gospel accounts do refer to him as an angel of the Lord. And they're alarmed, not just at his presence, they're alarmed by his words. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Notice here the tenses of the verbs. Who was crucified, but has risen. He is not here. Was, he has, he is. See the place where they laid him. With your own eyes, see. And they do. They see that the body of Jesus is gone. That's proof number two that the resurrection is a reality. Because Jesus was an actual person with an actual body who was buried in an actual tomb. A body that was in a tomb under Roman guard when everybody went to bed on Saturday night. But is gone when they get up the next morning. I mean, just think about it. Producing a body would have been the easiest way to prove that the resurrection was indeed a hoax. Yet despite the fact that Jesus' body was put inside a tomb and guarded by Roman soldiers, no body was ever produced. Why? Well, the angel tells us why. Because he is not here. He is risen. And this is God's kindness to these women I mean, how might these women have interpreted the empty tomb without the angel's words? Their minds would have sorted through a thousand possibilities, right? I mean, did the, did the Roman soldiers move the body? Did the religious leaders steal the body? No, the angel says, no, you don't even have to consider those possibilities. It's that Jesus is risen. You know, in this book we hold in our hands this morning, God does the same for us. He does for these women. He leaves us 
He doesn't leave us to sort through endless possibilities and potentialities, all of life's options and questions on our own. No, he answers life's questions. He answers our fears. He answers those perplexities right here in his word. It's Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We're told that the word of God gives light and understanding and wisdom to the simple. That's us. Wow. It's the angel's words here that enable the women to interpret what they don't understand and even to believe what they don't get. And as they take it all in here, notice, notice their response. It's so real and raw. It's shock and awe. They're blown away. The Greek word in verse 8 tells us that they are literally beside themselves. They are out of their minds because they aren't expecting a resurrection. In fact, none of the disciples are expecting a resurrection. The disciples haven't concocted some clandestine hoax to dupe the world into believing that Jesus has risen. Notice here, terror seized these, the, the hearts of these ladies. Not a knees-knocking-together kind of terror, but a take-your-breath-away kind of terror. The once-dead Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive. They can't wrap their minds around it. They can't process it because they can't explain it. And that's why the angel has to give them instructions. Notice here, ladies, 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 the angel says, now I'm making this part up, but give me just a second here. Ladies, look at me. Look me in the eyes. I need to know that you're looking at me so that you hear me. I, I, I know what, you're, what you've seen here is totally overwhelming. It's shocking because it isn't what you were expecting. So listen carefully. Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. But the women can't speak. On their way to the tomb, remember, they were talking while they were walking, but on their way from the tomb, they are running in silence. Why? Because Jesus called it. Jesus called it. That's proof number three that the resurrection is a reality. The ladies leave the tomb with the angel's final words ringing in their ears. Jesus is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. You won't just see evidence of a missing body. You'll see evidence of a living body. You'll see Jesus just as he told you. Jesus told his disciples this is what was going to happen. He said to them, listen, this is why I'm coming to Jerusalem this final time. I'm going to die, and then on the third day, I am going to rise again. And it all happened just as Jesus said. He called it. It isn't wishful thinking by a bunch of guys who expect us to check our brains at the door. It isn't a hoax dreamed up by guys who got their kicks off of duping the world into believing their lie. Now, you don't give up your life for a lie. You don't get crucified upside down like Peter for a hoax. No. Jesus called his death and resurrection, and then he died and rose again. Over the past few weeks, there's been a quote from Charles Colson floating around social media. 
Colson, those of you who are older, you'll remember that Colson served as White House special counsel to President Nixon before and during the Watergate scandal in the early 1970s. Here's what Colson says. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 11 men in the Bible testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 50 years, never once denying it. They were beaten, tortured, stoned, put into prison, and 10 of them were martyred. They would not have endured all of that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 11 apostles could keep a lie for 50 years? Absolutely impossible. It's true. And that's why this group of women flee from the tomb in amazement. You see, the resurrection of Jesus demands a response. None of us can walk out of this room this morning and say, you know, that's a really nice story. It's just so cool. Man, it's it's so much like the new Batman movie. And you walk out, you know, of the theater with, with goosebumps. Wow. No, because Jesus is risen from the dead, we just can't, we can't just ignore it. Either we reject it and pretend like it never happened, or we believe it and it changes everything about us. Everyone must make a decision. The evidence demands a verdict. So let me ask you this morning, what's your decision? Do you believe? Acts 4 verse 12 puts it this way. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus lived the perfectly holy and righteous life that we couldn't and we wouldn't. He lives it in our place, qualifying him to be the substitute, the sacrifice, the one dying in our place. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is for Ken Fields. For me. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says then that we deserve death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. The wages of my sin is that I deserve to die forever. But Jesus takes my place. He steps onto my cross. And is crucified there. For me. The wages of sin. My sin becomes his death. So that the gift of God to me would be eternal life. See, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. Jesus doesn't die to give us a little extra push toward heaven. 
because we're doing a pretty good job on our own, but we just need that oomph, that last little oomph. No. Jesus dies because we can't. We won't. And that's why he does. You believe that? Because John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, whoever believes then in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Can I ask you this morning, do you have life? The life of God and the Son of God for you? Or do you have the wrath of God because you've rejected the Son of God? If you were standing before God this morning and he were to ask you this question, why should I let you into my heaven, what would the first word out of your mouth be? Would it be I or myself or me? Or would it be Jesus? Would you trust him? It's all by grace through faith in Jesus. That's why he has to die. Trust him. Repent of your sins this morning and embrace him by faith. And the Bible says in Acts 16, verse 31, that you will be saved. And then, when you believe on Jesus, repenting of your sins and trusting the one who took the punishment for your sins... His resurrection becomes your new identity. You don't just have eternal life, uh, eternal life awaiting you on the other side of death. You have eternal life right now, present tense. The risen and eternally living Jesus lives in you. Look again at John 3, verse 36. Whoever has the Son has eternal life. Not will have eternal life, has it right now. You get how powerful that is? How faith-building and hope-giving that is? If the once-dead Jesus lives again, then sin's power and death's power over you has been broken forever. Wow. You know what that means? It means that the sexually addicted can be delivered. It means broken marriages can be healed. It means rebellious teenagers can run to Jesus and find forgiveness. It means fearful people can find courage and depressed people can find joy. And it's all because of the resurrection. Let the empty tomb this morning flip the switch for you. Let it fill your soul with resurrection power and life and hope. And here's what that means, parents. Even when you've had a series of bad days... And I won't ask for raised hands on this one. Even when you've had a series of bad days, you don't give in to despair and quit on your children because you believe in the empty tomb. Husbands and wives, when you face marital struggles, you don't give up on each other. You keep pushing through for each other because you believe in the empty tomb. You don't quit on your coworkers or your neighbors or your family members or your friends who need Jesus. You keep on loving them and you keep on praying for them because you believe in the empty tomb. You don't hide college students. You don't hide your faith in, at college. You stand strong in Jesus and you stand for Jesus because you believe in the empty tomb. 
The risen Jesus gives real substance to our faith, real roots to our hope, and real power to our courage. Because God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. 1 Peter 1.21 Bethel, the tomb is empty. The once dead Jesus lives forever more. Death has died. Sin has lost. Jesus lives forevermore. He indeed is worthy. Amen. Father, take your truth, plant it deep in our hearts, Help us to believe what in one sense is so unbelievable. So unbelievable that the women who witnessed the empty tomb with their own eyes still struggled with it, to believe it, to act upon it, to know it is truth. And yet Jesus will appear to to Emmaus disciples later that afternoon. He will appear to a group of disciples in a locked upper room that evening. And he will appear to more than 500 people at once. Jesus is risen. So can I ask you one more time this morning, do you believe that Jesus died on behalf of sinners like you to pay the penalty for your sins and mine and that he is risen just as he said forevermore trust him today trust him he will save you then, Christian, how is your faith? How is your hope? How is your joy? In the midst of everyday life, I know it can wane. Let it swell this morning. Jesus lives. There is purpose, even in our pain. There is hope, even in the struggle. There is strength even when we find ourselves at the end of ourselves. Because Jesus is risen. Trust him. He is worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.